everybody. Welcome to the Muscle Science for Women podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, Ashley Van Houten. My amazing uh, co-host, Rachel Gregory, will not be joining us today, unfortunately. And, you know, I did talk about with this podcast transition that it would be mostly Rachel and I discussing topics, educating, sharing. Um, but every once in a while, we're going to get a guest that's just so relevant and so great that we really need to have them on. And I had an opportunity that I couldn't pass up. So today it's just going to be me and a really, really awesome guest. Her name is Dr. Stacy Sims. She's an exercise physiologist and a real leading voice in women's performance specifically. She's directed research programs at Stanford, AUT University, the University of Waikato. She focuses on female athlete health and performance and really pushing to improve research for and about women. Because as we know, as we've talked about in, in previous episodes, for sure, that a ton of nutrition science, performance science, the research is done on men it's extrapolated towards women and we just kind of like hope it works. And it doesn't always because our physiology, our hormones, our goals, um, all of the things that make us who we are, there, there are differences and those differences matter. And she's really leading the way in that. She's written two books, Roar and Next Level. She's really well known for her TED talk, Women Are Not Small Men, which is a great phrase. And I think a lot of us ladies in this uh, field have used it. And I think that her goal, similar to Rachel and myself, is to educate everyone about the unique challenges, needs, and physical and physiological realities of women who are looking to improve their health and performance. I've referenced uh, Dr. Sims in my own work before, uh, and I was just really happy she was able to take an hour to chat with me about all of these topics. And we also talk about of course, nutrition and fueling, and she comes from a plant-based perspective. And anybody who's listened to this podcast for more than a minute knows that that's not the angle I'm coming from. So we have a good chat about that too. Uh, so before we launch in, I just want to tell you a little bit about our show sponsor. They are super, super supportive and great company that I appreciate a lot. It's Optimal Carnivore, and they make these really high quality, nutrient-dense whole food supplements from, you guessed it, organ meats. If you're not gonna eat them, if I can't convince you, the next best thing is to supplement, which it's essentially freeze-dried organs you're taking in pill form. So it's about as close to a whole food supplement as you can get. And they make a grass-fed organ complex. So it's a combination of organs. That's the one that I would recommend for people just getting started. And I think it's worth a try. It's basically like if you're gonna take a multivitamin, if you're worried about just getting the kind of full complement of vitamins and minerals that you want from an ideal diet, this is a, a helpful way to help you get there anyway. Um, and if you want to try them out, you can get 10% off your first order with the discount code MUSCLESCI. So short for muscle science, it's M-U-S-C-L-E-S-C-I on their Amazon store. It's just amazon.com forward slash optimal carnivore. We'll put all that in the show notes. And of course, because this is all new and we're kind of just switching things up with the podcast, we want to hear from you. So reach out to Rachel or myself on Instagram, all of our website, IG handles, everything are in the show notes. And you can send us an email directly to musclescienceforwomen at gmail.com. The four is the number, not written out, musclescienceforwomen at gmail.com. And if you have a good question or something you want us to talk about on the podcast, we may just read out your email on the show. So I'd love to hear from you. And that's it for me. Please enjoy my chat with Dr. Stacy Sims. All right, Dr. Stacy Sims, thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited. I, I appreciate it. And I have to say, you know, not to toot anybody's horn, but people were very excited about me having, having you on because I, I posted on social media and I got a lot of people saying, you know, I said, ask some questions, like, let me know what you want me to ask her. And they were like, I just can't wait to listen to this one. I'm so excited to listen to this one. So people are very pumped. No pressure for either of us. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and before we dive in, I just I also have to say that you you're somebody that I've really um, looked to and referenced a lot of my own work because humbly, I am also trying to uh, work with women to help them thrive and be their optimal, healthy, strong self um, through understanding their bodies. And I just have found, you know, still to this day, there, there aren't as many people out there doing that as probably no. there should be. Um, yeah. And so having somebody who just speaks 
really to women about their bodies and helps them understand. I think it's just so important. Um, and so thank you. Thank you for the work that you're doing. Yeah, thanks. And thank you for promoting it and perpetuating it. Yeah, yeah, we got to do it. Um, so if you could just kind of intro people a little bit and tell them how you came to be doing the specific kind of targeted work that you're doing, like why has this been such an important kind of passionate space in your life? Oh, gosh, going all the way back to university days, um, I was an athlete as well as being in the exercise phys program and it, and a lot of things that we were doing as rowers training up for big races it didn't seem to sit well with the women meaning that we tended to not peak appropriately for the races like the men did we would be a little bit more overtrained um and it seemed like the guys were recovering and adapting a lot faster than we were and when we started looking at it, or I started looking at it from the exercise physiology point of view as an undergraduate student and reading the textbooks and going, well, they never say woman. It's always he or the reference man. And I, I grew up as an inquisitive kid. My, my mom is, still is like, yeah, you were always the kid that asked why. Mm -hmm. um, and so when I started asking those questions, why, I never really got any answers. A lot of the times this was, we don't know enough about women. We just generalize women are the same as men. There's no difference. But when we started really getting into like metabolism labs, there were differences. And like my data was thrown out as being an anomaly. And the more I got involved in metabolism, ex-phys, then into clinical work, the more there was this discrepancy and I couldn't get the answers. So then I was like, this doesn't make sense. So I really started pushing, like trying to find the answers and having the availability of being an academic and an academic career path, going in and trying to answer those questions, as well as being an elite athlete and seeing what was going on in the elite athletic world, trying to help my teammates. So I'd get questions that I could go and answer. So it started as kind of a selfish drive. And now it's just pushing because there's so much misinformation out there for women. And as you know, women, we work hard and we want to have results, but the protocols and the diets and all of the things that have been pushed on us, basically based on male data, and it doesn't really work with our physiology. I just love how women, half the population is considered an anomaly because, you know, because we have cycles or because, you know, whatever is different rather than saying, okay, well, this is interesting and this is half the population, let's dive into it. We say, well, you're kind of complicated, so I guess we'll just not care yeah, at all. That's and not... totally it, right? Anyway, um, but I would love, before I get into the questions that the folks wanted me to ask you, I would love for you to kind of touch on and discuss maybe the differences between optimizing health and optimizing performance, because you are talking here about uh, competitive athletes and even elite athletes. And in many cases, I think it's fair to say, people who are competing or performing at the elite world-class level are not it's, that's not necessarily synonymous with optimized health. Not at um, all. And I, think, and I think that's something that, again, the, the average, and I say that as ath athletic recreational athletes, don't always understand because we're trying to like pursue this best possible performance as well as our optimized health. And we're confused and frustrated when we're kind of half-assing both of them. So can you just kind of speak to that for women to sort of try to understand why those things not, they don't necessarily work together all the time? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I get this all the time. When we're looking at the elite environment, it's their job. The elite athlete's job is to perform and win at so many selfish costs. So when we look at their life and it's all about training, it's all about performance, it's all about making the team, making the cut. They also are surrounded by allied health um, professionals. So they have a dietitian, they have a physio, they have a doctor. Doesn't necessarily mean that they use them, but they're available. And they also don't have to work full time for the most part. So the stresses are different, the environment is different, and the goal and the push is different. So if we're looking at a bell curve, they are the anomaly that's on the very far end away from the very sedentary end. So that population, both those populations are completely different. When we look at the bell curve in the general recreational female athlete, and that can be someone who is super competitive in their age group 
or wants to get the best for themselves or is on the other spectrum and just starting on their fitness journey. We look and there are so many other confounding stressors. We have family, we have work, we have environmental stress. Like we can't just all up and go in the middle of winter to someplace nice and tropical to relieve that stress, right? So when we're talking about performance in that aspect, we have to also look at the additional stresses that are around women and allow women to kind of let go of that, like understand that these stresses impact. So when we look at things like the menstrual cycle, and there are different times in the menstrual cycle where the body's super resilient to stress and other times where it's not so resilient to stress. So this is why I always have women like track their cycle and understand that when those hormones drop, the body changes and is super resilient to stress. So you're, if you are under a lot of life stress, it's still a time where you can push hard in your training and get optimal adaptations. But after ovulation, when you have changes in the immune system, you have changes in neurotransmitters, you have changes in fueling, and your body isn't as optimally adept for being stress resilient, it's not the time to try to push, 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 push. And when women start to understand that, then they don't have that, I have to go hard every day. And if I don't go hard, something's wrong. Mm -hmm. Because when we start looking at how hormones affect us, as well as our life stress, then it gives the okay from that objective data to be like, I'm at a time where I'm in my cycle and every month at this time, I'm a bit flat and I noticed that. So I'm not going to go hard. I'm going to take care of myself. Mm -hmm. And when women start to understand that and apply it, then their training potential and their, their own performance just supersedes what they ever thought it could do. Mm-hmm. So there is definitely that difference. And so when we're taking the high elite performance environment, it's a completely different population. And I would treat those athletes differently than I would look at the everyday woman who's trying to get the best out of their performance lifestyle. Mm-hmm. I think that's why it's so important that we, again, women understand the physiology and the hormonal um, realities because it's very difficult within the cultural context that women live in with regards to fitness and nutrition and body shape and all of these things. It's really hard to tell women. It can seem like you're telling them like you have to settle for one thing or the other. Like if you want to be optimally healthy, you might not look exactly how you want to look or you may not perform exactly as well as you'd like to. Or then conversely, you have to say, look, if you want to be a good athlete, even a recreational athlete, like your health is going to suffer. People always feel like they're going to be giving up something. And we also live in this world where women are kind of told and sort of encouraged that you like have to do everything perfectly all the time. So it's a a tough one because, you know, I, I try to tell people, it's hard to tell people, manage your expectations, understand that there is always sort of this like juggling act of like compromise and one thing taking priority over the other without also saying like, you're not, you're going to be disappointed with your results either way. You know, it's really tough. But I think what you're saying is if you're teaching people about understanding their cycles and their hormones and all of these things, it's just providing a bit more like fact and reality-based information that they can work with instead of just selling them something that, that is unrealistic and going to leave them disappointed, you know? Exactly. And looking at trends too, like a lot of women get focused on the week to week or the day to day, but they don't take that step back and look at trends. So when we have someone who starts tracking sleep and menstrual cycle, and we say, look at the trends over the course of three full cycles, you really start to see how sleep and training and menstrual cycle all interrelate. And this is a significant amount of objective data that then women can take into their own life and realize that they're not algorithms and they can't do the same thing every day. Mm -hmm. Because if they try to do that, they're still not going to get what they want. And at the end of the month or two months or whatever of trying to do that every day, they're just going to be flat and depressed and just not able really to function how they want to. So Mm -hmm. we talk about the trends so much and looking at how that can be incorporated into what you're trying to do. Mm -hmm. And again, that gives more women the empowerment to kind of let go a bit and say, it's okay because what I do today, if I miss out on a workout, it's not a big deal because I'm looking at the trends and where am I going to be in two months? So I try to really push that and get people out of the narrow scope of what am I doing today? How am I going to push today? What am I eating today? What are my macros? It's like Mm -hmm. getting into that nuanced, 
like really specific numbering is such mm-hmm. a disservice to women. Mm-hmm. And it takes away a lot of this guilt when you don't know why you feel flat or why you have low energy or why you're suddenly craving chocolate and you just, of course, attribute it to your own personal failings yeah. <laughs> instead of when you understand what your body is physically doing. It gives you, you know, it's not like, oh, I can settle back and like not make any changes or have no control over my life, but it's about understanding like this is what's actually happening in my body and this is the response. Exactly. Um, I think that that's huge. Um yeah, so I'd like to talk about the cycle thing a, a little bit. I know we, you know, we could talk about it all day and kind of barely scratch the surface. There's a lot of complexity to women's bodies and how they work, but I completely, of course, agree that the more information we have about our bodies and our cycles, that's that's useful, that's important information. It can tell us a lot of things. And I do kind of touch on this in this uh, strength training course that I've developed um, to understand when you, again, may be more primed for stress and performance and when you should maybe take it easy and food stuff. However, is there also an element of, um, in the context of still tracking and understanding your cycle, being in a place where you have your lifestyle factors sorted out and you're kind of resilient to an extent that you maybe don't have to think about your cycle so much with regards to performance? Because again, I'm speaking to like an average recreational, I just want to be fit and healthy woman who is trying to sort out their sleep and their stress and their food. And maybe you're thinking, oh, now I have to think about the cycle and I have to like know that this part of the month, I'm not going to be performing as well. Is there an element where we can say like, if you are really optimizing all of these other factors, maybe you don't have to train around your cycle so much, or should that always be something we take into account? Um, from the background point, I really encourage women to keep track of their cycle because if we start to see a misstep in the bleed pattern or the cycle length, it's a really good indication that there's a misstep in the endocrine system. It's like the first stopgap that there is a misstep in the amount of stress or, you know, nutrition in and around the um, training because so many women fall into low energy availability. And this is one of the first things that really thwarts results is not eating enough for the activity that they're doing. Mm -hmm. And we can see that coming out in menstrual cycle changes. First, it is bleed pattern changes, and then it can actually be cycle length changes. So it's not that they have to really dial in every day and be like, I'm day three and I'm going to do this on day three. But again, it's being aware of the trends and understanding Mm -hmm. that if they start to see these changes, then it's an early warning sign that they can actually take charge and step back and assess, okay, what's going wrong here and reset and make sure that, you know, like I said, they're fueling for their workout, recovering from it, having adequate recovery days to then be able to have a robust endocrine system. Mm -hmm. Because we know that when people don't track it and then they lose it or all of a sudden it's gone, you know, two or three months and they don't, don't have a period, then they're starting to fall into um, amenorrhea or relative energy deficiency in sport. And none of it is weight related. It's stress related. So people are like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't get my period because I'm too thin. It's like, no, that's a misnomer. That's, that is a very old wives tale. Or people Mm. were like, I'm normal BMI or I'm normal weight or I'm trying to lose weight. I can't lose my period. And that's Mm. absolutely not true. So that's the undercurrent. Like you don't have to be dialed into day to day. This is what I'm doing because I'm on day two or three, but it is again, really being cognizant of the cycle itself. And if you have any early changes. Okay. That makes sense. Um, before we talk about some nutrition stuff, because again, that's, that's what a lot of people were very adamant that I ask you about. Can you speak a little bit to some of the protective or positive aspects of women's hormonal makeup like you talked about how there are certain points in our our cycle when we're really resistant to stress and we can really kind of push and you know there's a lot of things that estrogen does for the body that is very positive i think that we also have this unfortunate culture where we think of like men men male hormones testosterone that's the good stuff that builds muscle and makes you recover and you're strong and you're healthy and like too much estrogen that's the woman's hormone and that's what makes you weepy and sad and emotional and all this like 
totally ridiculous stuff. Because of course we all have all these hormones. It's in different varying amounts. They're all very important. And as I'm just starting to learn, a lot of these, these female dominant like estrogen, progesterone, things like that, they're very helpful and supportive of building muscle and, and recovery and um, you know flexibility, all these things. So can you kind of just speak to how it's not all bad news for women and our hormones? Yeah, yeah, it's not bad news at all. Like right. we can use our hormones as our secret ergogenic aid, right? Mm-hmm. So estrogen is anabolic and right. it is really tied to the myosin filament of the actin myosin protein contraction, right? For muscle contraction. So without estrogen, then that's when we start having atrophy and issues with muscle protein synthesis. And we know estrogen is important for bone. And it's important for maintaining plasma volume and thermoregulation. Um, and, and progesterone and estrogen work together for like bone and blood glucose control and reducing visceral or abdominal fat. And they affect every system of the body. So progesterone can be calming at times because it affects the parasympathetic and, and autonomic nervous system. So when we start looking at female sex hormones from the aspect of natural versus something like hormone replacement therapy or oral contraceptive pill. Um, there's a reason why people are, are going towards the synthetics when they start to have low estrogen and low progesterone because every system gets affected. Hmm. So we know that the positive benefits of maintaining a cycle and maintaining estrogen progesterone is that every system of the body is supported. Cardiovascular system, brain especially, um, and then again, muscle protein synthesis and lean mass development and bone and signaling to keep body fat down. Mm-hmm. Testosterone is a kind of a moot point because we have a low amount of testosterone that doesn't really fluctuate so much through our entire lives. I mean, we have age decline, but for women, the massive positive hormone, like you said, is estrogen. And I, and as you were saying earlier, it's such a negative rep, but it's not. Yeah. It's one of those things that we really want to encourage women to keep track and have their cycles and all that kind of stuff because it's such a positive influence on women. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just, I want women to to know that it's like, we don't, our whole life shouldn't be about like managing and like getting by with our female hormones that make us weepy or sad or gain weight or whatever. These are, these are very important hormones that help us build strength and resilience and be healthy. Um, and it's important to, to know that and not think that it's all just bad stuff. Yeah. And there's a really um, important point when we're talking about training and performance. When I talk about menstrual cycle phase-based training and being stress resilient, it is about training itself. But when we're talking about performance on the day, like, you know, you have a major event or you're training up for something. There's no negative point in the menstrual cycle for performance the day, the day of. Um, hormones in that regard have less an effect because we have the psychological that supersedes the physiological. So mm-hmm. all the training building up to, those are all adaptations. And we can use the fluctuation of hormones going up and down to our advantage to get the most of our, out of our training for better fitness adaptations. But women who are like, oh, I can't perform well on this day because I'm four days out from my cycle, you can absolutely perform and you can absolutely get a PR, even if you always feel a bit flat on that day. Hmm. Because when we start looking at some of the small interventions you can do, plus the mental skills, it far supersedes anything that the hormones can do. I love that. That's so important for people to know. And it's like, it's not a woo-woo thing to think about how important your mental preparation and your attitude really has on performance and, I mean, your overall health. But yeah, I think that's a really good point. Um, Okay, so two big topics that I want to try to cover as quickly as we we can that people ask over and over again uh, around nutrition that you talk about are carbs, probably knew this was coming, and uh, fasting. And those yep. are both, of course, very big topics that, you know, we could go on and on. And I think it's also very bio-individual, but maybe let's start with carbs, because if you go by the internet alone, there are two camps. And one is that all carbs are bad forever and no one should ever eat them. And then the other camp that says, of course, that's stupid and you should eat carbs to, to fuel your, your activity. 
And of course, it is also maybe different with women. So what are your thoughts on carbs for performance as well as just sort of overall thriving in a, in a female body? Yeah, so when we look at carbs, we know that there are the different kinds, right? So when I talk about carbs, I'm talking about like the fruit and veg, the whole grains, not talking about refined stuff. Um, and when we look from a physiological perspective, there are two areas in the hypothalamus for women that have neurons of kispeptin. Now, kispeptin is super important in the fact that it controls appetite and it also controls your luteinizing hormone pulse in your endocrine system. It's super sensitive to low calorie intake and blood glucose. So if we don't have enough carbohydrate coming in, then it can downregulate kispeptin. So when kispeptin is downregulated, and it can only be four days worth of, of low carb stuff, or not eating enough, it's downregulated, your thyroid hormone takes a hit. So we start seeing a, a decrease in TSH. We start seeing a decrease in your resting metabolic rate. And we start seeing perturbations in our luteinizing hormone pulse, which is super important to have a menstrual cycle. So we need LH pulsing every day before it actually has a big surge right before ovulation. If we start having a misstep in our LH pulse, then we also have a misstep in the way that our estrogen pulses throughout the day and it starts to flatline. And like I said, this can occur only like within four days of that kispeptin being downregulated. So when we look at the thresholds between men and women, men have one area in the hypothalamus that have kispeptin neurons because they don't have an endocrine system and they don't have um, things like estrogen that's tied to appetite and appetite hormones. So when we look at the baseline level, we know that men start to get endocrine dysfunction when their calorie intake is around 15 or less calories per kilogram of fat-free mass. But for women, it's 35, so it's over half, right? And a lot of that is carbohydrate-driven because women fuel differently from men with regards to physical activity. We clear blood glucose quickly, and then we start accessing free fatty acids, but we don't tap so much into storage form, our muscle and liver glycogen. Whereas men will sort of use blood glucose and then really dive into muscle and liver glycogen. So they have the availability to clear it out and then start tapping into body fat. So this is why we see a lot of fasted training in men that works. We see metabolic flexibility. We see, you know, train low, recover high. So train low carb, recover with high carbohydrate because their metabolism is not attuned to immediately using free fatty acids. So they need a little bit of a tune up. But for women, our set state is natural to use more free fatty acids. We have more protein within the muscle mitochondria to use fatty acids. We have estrogen that encourages us to use fatty acids. And we have progesterone that pulls carbohydrate into the endometrial lining. But for that, we need carbohydrate because of the blood sugar aspect. So if we're low on carbohydrate, everything takes a hit. Everything starts to downregulate and we start getting a, a slower response for resting metabolic rate. We have a slower uptake of high intensity work and reduction in adaptations. So it is super important for women to have carbohydrate. And when we look at the diet trends that are out there with regards to really low or no carbohydrate and the outcomes that are purported for performance, they don't work in women. There's no efficacy for that. When we look for a health perform or a health aspect of time restricted eating or um, high fat low carb diet, the outcomes still are different for women than men. So when we see um, like increased parasympathetic response, we see better blood glucose control, we see changes in telomere length. All that's male data, but when we look for women, it's not there. We have more sympathetic drive. We get into this up state because our body's like, oh shit, now we're in a conservation. I don't have enough fuel coming in. So it's a complete mm -hmm. sympathetic drive. There's no focus. There's no reduction. So this is why a lot of women start to feel tired, but wired. We have an increase in our low density lipoproteins and we start to get some insulin resistance instead of increased insulin sensitivity. And it is because our bodies need that extra bit of carbohydrate just to keep the hypothalamus and this kispeptin neurons working 
to allow us to have a really robust endocrine and metabolic rate. So that's a lot of like trying to get through and, and dive into mm -hmm. what are those trendy diets and, and how does it affect us? It doesn't matter what diet you're on. It depends on what's happening in the hypothalamus and how those kisspeptin neurons are either being upregulated or downregulated through nutrition density. So women need to really be cognizant that they need more calories at baseline. They do better in a fed state with regards to training adaptations. We know that if you have protein before you go do a resistance training set, it actually increases your resting metabolic rate for a longer period of time post-exercise than if you were to just have carbohydrates. So you need carbohydrate mm -hmm. and protein together, but you need that protein to kind of help with that. And it all has to do, again, with that um, calorie perception and nutrient density that the kisspeptin is reading. Okay. So I know a lot of people in sort of the keto, low-carb, carnivore, fasting world, including women, there may be some people listening being like, well, I'm doing this and it's fine. And we know that there's enough bioindividuality that you could name almost any diet or dietary protocol and someone's going to thrive on it just because we're all so different. Yep. But would you say that, you know, if there is a small but relatively significant group of women who are either fasting, eating super low carb, keto, whatever, who are doing well, what do you say to that? Is it because maybe this is a temporary thing that works until it doesn't, or because they're so bio-individual, or maybe because they're eating enough protein and, and healthy fats that it's kind of working? Like, what do you say to the people who are like, well, I'm doing it the other way and it works? Yeah. And I always ask, how are you doing stuff before you started this diet? Because a lot of mm -hmm. people will <clears throat> not find any results. They might be eating, quote, clean, but they're not eating enough, right? Yeah. Or they're eating a lot of low supposed healthy food, but it's engineered nutrition. Mm -hmm. So I always ask, well, how was your nutrition status before you actually started this diet? Because now if you're doing the keto, the low carb, the carnivore, you are probably now getting enough calories. You're probably now more cognate and aware of the food that you're putting in your body. And you're probably also fueling for your activity, depending on where you are in all of this. And most women can hold anything for three to five months and thrive. And then we really start seeing the implications of, of long-term health implications on this. Mm -hmm. It's just mm -hmm. like any diet. Men can probably thrive for, you know, six or seven months on something. And then you start seeing the health implications of it. Mm -hmm. Because like I said before, we're not algorithms and we can't just do one thing and continue through. And there's this huge misconception that if you take carb out, then the body's fine. But you need carbohydrate to help fat and protein all work in the body. And you need fat and protein to help carbohydrate work in the body. And that's the way that the metabolic control is. And that from a physiology perspective and a scientist perspective, I see this and I understand it. But how it gets translated out into the real world is so messed up. And people don't understand that you need all of your macronutrients in order to thrive from a health perspective. Mm -hmm. We know that the way people are eating is really messed up in the global aspect of people have too many calories available all the time. And so there aren't any set meal times. This is why time-restricted eating has come up as such great health things because now people aren't eating right before bed. 24 hours a day. Yeah. Right, right. And so it's like if we take it back down to the bare-bone minimum, if we eat, quote, normally like people used to where you're having three or four meals, you're eating according to how you're hungry, you're fueling for the activity that you're doing, knowing that your appetite is super dynamic, right? Some days you need to eat more, some days you need to eat less. And back in the day, people didn't have food after dinner, right? And so then they were able to go to bed, you know, two to three hours after a meal and have really good sleep and wake up hungry. Mm -hmm. And this is kind of what time-restricted eating is about and intermittent fasting is about, is trying to block off those times that used to just be inherent the way we ate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, what what you're saying is is definitely, I feel like, reflective in the work that I do. And just for people listening, I think some people may be a little bit confused about maybe what I uh, advocate, too, because I wrote a book. I just yeah. wrote a book called Carnivore-ish, which yeah. 
is obviously very protein um, heavy, but the, the concept is that, of course, our plates are all going to look different. There is absolutely room and necessity for healthy fats, healthy carbs. It's just going to be different depending on who we are. And I want to focus on the idea of healthy bioavailable protein for women, because as you've said, one of the biggest issues we have is that we are under eating um, and protein tends to be a macro the that biggest we thing really that don't eat super undervalue. Um, but in terms of like carb amounts, like I've never been an advocate of keto or zero carb, I think that, um, but with that said, you know, what I consider to be moderate carbs that support my active lifestyle is probably still much lower than like the standard American diet idea of carbs, maybe. Right. Yeah. So like, how do women start to understand? And, you know, again, I've worked with women who were doing a strict keto diet. They were, they had 50 plus maybe pounds of body fat that they were looking to lose. And it worked incredibly well for them. Like you said, for maybe six months, maybe 10 months. And then all of a sudden they're having all this hormonal issues. They're plateauing, they're gaining weight again. And they feel guilt about like eating a strawberry. And that's where, again, you need to like bring it back to like brass tacks here and be like, when did we, when were we told that strawberries were a, a bad food that was going to ruin us? Because you know? there's sugar in a strawberry. <laughs> right. So how do we start to, again, using common sense and science, understand how many carbs we should be eating? Yeah, I get amazed at people who don't understand carb, right? And it, it falls back to, oh, I can't have fruit because it has sugar in it. It's like, well, actually, nature's super smart because it comes with fiber and fiber and pectin wrap up the fructose so it doesn't have a harmful effect on the body. If you were to take in straight fructose, that's when there's a problem. Mm -hmm. So we look at carbohydrate, and again, you and I are on the same page. We're talking about like really good, robust fruit, veg, like close to nature as possible mm -hmm. right and if we're looking at like an athlete or someone who has a lot of physical activity in their job then yeah they're going to need more carbohydrate because their muscles are moving all the time for someone who's just resistance training or someone who's trying to have calorie restriction to lose weight then we're looking at a little bit less carb but higher protein so if we're looking at the general recommendations, I can't give any because when we look at the guidelines for carbohydrate intake and these position stands that come out from like American College of Sports Medicine or the Dietetics Association, out of like 160 to 200 references, there's only four that are on women and they have nothing to do with carbohydrate. So we have to revisit the guidelines and understand that, again, women's needs are different depending on where they are, what their life phase is, because as you get older, you become more resistant to carbohydrate. So we have to look at really maximizing physical activity for that carbohydrate intake and understanding there are things we need to do to increase our insulin sensitivity. And younger women get by with so much more because they're younger. Mm -hmm. And so when we talk about carbohydrate intake, like the minimum would be two to three grams per kilogram of body weight. So I'm sorry, I'm metric. So if we think about that, yeah. one, one to two grams per pound Yeah. on average. Okay. And, but when we look at protein, it's more than that because the recommendation for protein right now is based on sedentary older men and brought over, and that's what women are supposed to take. Mm -hmm. But we look at the research and women who are active need twice that. So that 0.8 grams per pound is actually twice that. Mm -hmm. And there's where that discrepancy comes in. Because they're like, oh, well, I'm eating this for protein, but I might over, um, overeat in my macros. And, and so it's the numbers game. Yeah. So the, the way that I try to make it easy is fuel for what you're doing. So if you're going to have a half an hour of resistance training, carbohydrate is probably not all that important. As long as you have some that's bringing blood sugar up so you can do what you need to do. If you're going to go for an hour run, that's a different story. Like we need to have some carbohydrate available and we need to have carbohydrate afterwards. Mm -hmm. Otherwise you stay in this breakdown state. And the first thing that goes is lean mass. So yeah. those are the things that we have to really think about. And then the total carbohydrate really is based on your physical activity of the day. I love too, that the focus is on like, fueling for you and what you specifically need. Because I think sometimes, again, we lose track of why we're doing something. We're doing, are we doing 
keto to be keto and say that we're keto or are we doing keto because it's helping our health you know like i just had a baby and i reference this all the time because it's what's in my head and i was eating way more carbs than i normally do because i was building a human and i was really hungry and my body was telling me to eat carbs yeah. um and i had so many people reaching out to me and they were like well how can you be maybe how can you have a healthy pregnancy and be low carb or keto or fast or all these things? And I'm like, but why would you want to? Right. Even if you could, it's so much work. It's so much harder for you. And are you doing it just to say I was pregnant and keto? Like eat some carbs if your body's telling you to and it's supporting your health. I just, I feel like sometimes we lose the, you know, the forest for the trees kind of situation. It's like, are we doing this because we've discovered that it's best for our health or because someone told us this was the best way and we're going to do it till it kills us, you know? Right. Um, okay, so I want to switch over to the, the fasting thing a little bit because um, I, I guess I want to know how important food timing is. And, and you know, I understand that people can take fasting, again, to an extreme level that isn't necessary. And a lot of times women and people in general will use fasting as a almost an excuse to eat less when really in its like pure form, it's not about that. It's about restricting the window in which you're eating. Um, but how bad is like a moderate daily um, intermittent fast if you're still eating the right amount of food to fuel for yourself, if you're still eating carbs, you're not using it to like minimize calories and you're not, you know, you don't have like a three hour window. Say you're trying to do like a 10 to five or something. Like how bad is it really if you're still eating enough? So this is where it's interesting, because if we look at why people are doing intermittent fasting and fasting, right, and we look at the health benefits and we look at all the things that are coming out about the health aspects of intermittent fasting with regards to the telomere length, metabolic control, all of those things. And then we look at the exercise data. The exercise data does the same thing, but it's more robust and it's a stronger stimulus. So you really have to ask yourself, why are you doing it? Are you doing it for the health and are you active? So that's the first baseline. Then the second for women is when you are fasting, does your training fall in that fasted window? Because we know from research, like I said earlier, women do much, much better in a fed state. Doesn't mean a lot, but just means that they have food coming in, might be 100, 150 calories of protein with little carbohydrate before training to boost blood sugar, drop cortisol and then recover. Because if we don't eat after training, we stay in this breakdown state and your body perceives it as low energy availability. And like I said earlier, the kispeptin read it, you start to have an endocrine hit. And with you know only four days of this, your thyroid and resting metabolic rate have taken a hit. And your body doesn't repair. So I'm always like, well, what's the point of doing a training session? Because your body can't adapt without the food to recover from it. So if we're doing intermittent fasting or fasts, time-restricted eating, but we are taking care of our training by eating in and around training and not following in that fasted window, then there is some room for it. But when we look again at the data and understand why are people doing it, I really want women to understand that most of the data that comes out around intermittent fasting and time-restricted eating is on male population, some active male population, and sedentary obese women. But when we look at the outcomes for women who are active and trying to do time-restricted eating, buckling them both up and backing them both up with activity and time-restricted eating is a moot point because exercise is so much stronger as a stimulus to allow your body to get those health adaptations because exercise in itself is a fasted state. Mm. and drives the the signaling for improving telomere length, drives the signaling for um, autophagy, and it drives the signaling for metabolic control. So I always have women take a step back and really try to think about why are they doing it. Yeah. If they're looking for calorie control for weight loss, we know that calorie restriction with regards to having a slight calorie restriction in the evening away from training is a much better way of managing and changing body composition than having long windows where you're not eating. Mm -hmm. Okay. What do you say for women who, and this is specific to breakfast, it's what I notice the most, but like I wake up and I'm generally within 
at least an hour. I'm hungry. Like I'm ready to eat and fuel for my day. I have dealt with a lot of clients, women clients who say they aren't hungry, like they can't bring themselves to eat before say noon or something. And I do think there's often like some different elements that go into why that would be. But what advice do you have for women who are like, I know I need to fuel better. I know I maybe need to eat more, but like, I'm just like not hungry. What do I, what do I do? Yeah. So there's two things there. Like I fall into when I'm too stressed, I don't have an appetite. So I wake up Mm -hmm. not hungry. Right. Mm -hmm. So forcing something down before I go training Mm -hmm. and it can be, um, like protein powder, um, with almond milk and coffee or something just enough to be able to raise blood sugar, get some amino acids going. So then when I do some training, I'm not fasted. Right. And then I come back and I still might not be hungry, but I'll do something for recovery. And then my appetite will come back. And that seems to be a pattern for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. But oh, what happens when we get into this habit of not eating is we are losing what it means to be hungry and what it means to be full. So I have women who are in this situation, and I've done it myself, so I know my cues and what I need to do, is I have them not eat in the afternoon. So they are doing their training And they're like, I'm not hungry. And then they might have lunch. And then there's this big hole in the afternoon. And normally they're like, oh, I'm hungry a couple hours later. I'll have something. I'm really hungry at dinner. But I'm like, okay, so I want you to eat lunch. And then I want you not to have anything for four or five hours. And I want you to write down how you feel. Are you feeling flat? Are you feeling tired? Are you feeling energized? Like, what is it? Because I want to understand what your perception is when you don't have this fuel. Because this is how we understand how you are recognizing hunger cues. Because women don't understand what it means to be hungry. And when we start to see these patternings of lethargy at 3 o'clock and flat and irritable, that means you're hungry. It doesn't mean you need caffeine. It doesn't mean Mm -hmm. that you need to do some more training. It means that you need to eat. So when we start leveraging what it means to be hungry and understanding individual cues because we don't have that tummy rumbling, and then people wake up and they're like, I feel really flat and lethargic. I didn't get enough sleep. Oh, no, mm-hmm. I'm hungry. Mm-hmm. So it's the reteaching and having small things until they get their appetite back. But again, really making sure that that training nutrition is sound. What are your thoughts on uh, plant versus animal protein and how women should be getting their, their protein? I think you know, I've noticed that there's definitely sort of a more concentrated marketing effort to get women on the plant-based bandwagon more so than men. I think mostly probably because women do most of the sort of purchasing. Um, They're more often the consumers and the people who are going to be purchasing for their families and stuff like that. But um, it's also, I think, sometimes an easier moral argument for people who maybe don't know all the complexities to say plant-based protein is a a nicer option. Um, But what are your thoughts in general on how women should be fueling protein-wise? So full disclosure, I have been plant-based since I was 14, but Mm -hmm. I don't necessarily agree with all the things that have come out now, right? So we Mm -hmm. look at the environmental impact of all the plants that are growing and then things like Impossible Burger and all the things, so all the things, right? Mm -hmm. And we have this push. And when it comes down to it, it's actually the quality of protein. Right. So again, we know that women don't eat enough protein and my push is that women get quality protein. So if you are more skewed towards plant-based protein, you have to dial in your leucine. You have to dial in your essential amino acids and you have to know where to get them from, not Mm -hmm. from things like impossible burger and all of the processed stuff, Mm -hmm. because that doesn't necessarily work in our bodies. Mm -hmm. If you are more leaning towards, um, animal-based proteins, great because there's so much um, out there that has really quality essential amino acids and leucine. Fantastic. Mm -hmm. So I tend to gravitate towards women who are plant-based and really come down hard and say, look, if you want adaptations, we have to have a really good look at the type of protein and the quality of protein that you are eating. Mm -hmm. Because often being plant-based, you become full before you get what you need. Right, right. Yeah. And then the other extreme with people who are eating lots and lots of animal-based protein is we have to make sure you have really good cruciferous vegetables to take care of your gut microbiome. Hmm. So again, it's the balance. The extremes, 
we need to pull them in a little bit and kind of support both extremes with mm -hmm. the balance of high density protein as well as cruciferous veggies for that deep gut microbiome. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I appreciate you talking about this because I, I knew going into it that you were, you know, plant-based and obviously I come from like a, a different perspective. Yeah. I think we're we're both speaking absolutely about the same things. And I've said before that, you know, at the end of the day, I'm not trying to convince vegans of anything. Um, I'm just trying to encourage women to eat more protein at the end exactly. of the day. And, and I think most plant-based people will agree that if you are strictly plant-based, it takes more work. It does take a little bit more science and all of those things. But at the end of the day, if it's for a moral or a religious or a personal preference reason, telling somebody you're you're wrong for eating plant-based, that's not gonna change anybody's mind anyway. So instead, let's meet people where they are and try to get them the best options possible. Um, I do, and I completely of course agree that, you know, no matter how we're eating, we should be focusing on like the least processed, most bioavailable ways we can do this. Um, do you, yeah, go ahead. I was gonna say, there are many times throughout the years when I was racing at a high level that I wished that I had animal protein sources for the ease of it being there, but also for the recovery and the density. Um, but I went plant-based at such an early age that I just really couldn't tolerate the animal protein. And so there are many times in my life before it became trendy to be plant-based that I wish that I hadn't because of the performance benefits of the animal-based protein. Yeah. And, and so I try to, to tell people like I'm plant-based from an experience I had when I was 14 and I'm way older than that now. Mm -hmm. So now when we're looking at what's best for us and what's best for all the cultural aspects around it, it's that moderation. We need yeah. both. Okay. Do you ever find it tough? And I'm not saying this is what you're doing, but if you're, you're plant-based and you maybe in some instances recognize that animal protein, again, if we're doing it in a ethical, sustainable, healthy, moderate way is a easier. And in some cases, superior source of Absolutely. some of these nutrients. I mean, is it hard for you sometimes to be like, just for example, like, Hey, sort of do as I say, not as I do. Like if you can eat animal protein, maybe you should try that avenue. Is that, yeah. is that a tough thing for you sometimes or? No, not at all. I, okay. My husband grew up on a, a family farm, like they, um, dairy farm, you know, all that kind of stuff. And the cultural aspects of how meat is produced in New Zealand is completely different than States. Right. Mm -hmm. So my experience was a pig slaughterhouse when I was 14 as a biology field trip, right? So that was my turning point. But when we look from the physiological aspects, again, I'm like, if you can eat animal protein, yeah. it is a superior way of getting your essential amino acids and the protein that you need for the adaptations that you want. Mm -hmm. And when you're traveling, it's so much easier than trying to be plant-based. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that the other, one of the bigger challenges here is that we do so much for whatever reason, apply kind of personality or morality based feelings around food more than other things. And so it's hard to sometimes not be defensive or not get upset when people, we feel like people are like calling out our, our decision-making abilities or something. But I think that at the end of the day, everybody has the same goals in mind. We want to do make choices that are the best for our health, the best for the planet, cause the least harm. Right. And we just all maybe have slightly differing opinions on how to do that. But I think that whether you're plant-based or animal-based or like we're talking about some variation in the middle, which is the majority of us, the goal should always be to within the resources, the finances, the abilities that we have to make the best decisions. Um, and that goes for buying plant foods and it goes for buying animal foods. Um, and I think that if we had a little bit more nuance and a little bit less judgment around this conversation, um, people might feel more okay with trying different things and Absolutely. making different decisions. I just, I, it, it sucks that there's so much divisiveness about it because um, again, the vast majority of us are not 100% carnivore or 100% vegan. We're just trying to make the best decisions. Right. Um, and yeah, so anyway, I, I appreciate that. Um, what do you think as like a high level, cause we're coming to the end here, I could ask you a million questions, but what do you think is like one big overarching, um, 
nutrition principle that all women can kind of start with or take with them that maybe they aren't doing in terms of just understanding choices, things that are going to help their health immediately? Like what's one big thing that you just wish women knew? Fuel for what you are doing and recover from it. Mm-hmm. That's the biggest rock because there's so many women that are in that low energy availability aspect mm-hmm. or don't recover well from their training and stay in that breakdown state. Mm-hmm. And when you start telling women, you know, fuel for what you are doing, because this is the biggest thing that you can do because your body's under stress when you exercise. And if you're fueling for that stress, everything kind of falls into play. Your mood mm-hmm. starts to get better your body composition starts to change in a positive manner. Mm-hmm. And it reduces a lot of the nuances of, oh, I ate too much today or I didn't eat enough today. Like all mm-hmm. those negative self-talk. So mm-hmm. the biggest rock is fuel for what you are doing to support the stress that your body yes. is under. It's so good. Do you do you think it's a, a good recommendation for most people, again, maybe as a temporary tool to track what they're eating? Like I, I understand that for some people that can be a, a potentially triggering or a potentially unhealthy practice, but I feel like one of the issues is that a lot of like women and clients that I talk to simply have no idea how much they're eating. Right. And so they could be vastly maybe overeating the wrong things or more likely they're not eating enough of what they need to be eating. Um, and so they kind of need to pay attention to those things for a short period of time, right? Yeah, it's the trends, right? Yeah. Because we can't out-exercise a bad diet. Like there's that nuance that if I exercise more and I spend more time, then I can eat whatever I want. Or I earned this because I spent X amount of time exercising. And that's complete BS. Like there's no way that you can out-exercise a bad diet. So nutrient timing is super important for women, but also understanding the quality of your diet. And so if it means that you're tracking for trends and understanding how you eat, when you eat, what's triggering, and getting that objective data to make better choices, then do it. But if it's one of these where women fall into the tracking every calorie and everything that they're doing, then don't do it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I completely agree. The recovery part is so important. And I like, I have a whole, um, segment on recovery in this this program that I've developed for women because that is such an important one. And that's, again, there's so much mental going into that. It's not even just physical and biofeedback and performance metrics. It's like how people think about recovery, like being lazy or I'm slacking off or a lot of people don't recognize, right. as you said, that exercise is a stressor. Even if it feels like your one time to de-stress or your one time alone, when you're working out, it's stressing your body and that adds to your stress load, right? Um, I feel like that could be an entirely separate, I might have to have you back on just to talk about uh, recovery, but I'd love for you before we take off, you have like co-created an app for women around like some fitness stuff. Can you talk about that? I was interested. Yeah. Yeah. So Wild AI um, is a a tracking app for women who are naturally cycling on contraception, who are perimenopause, postmenopause, and it uses women-oriented artificial intelligence. So why I say that is most of the AI algorithms are from a male environment written by men for men but this is different and the algorithms are written, written in a female environment, understanding the female body. So when you're tracking with wild AI, you're putting in your data of sleep, training, symptoms, symptomology, all those kinds of things. And it learns you and can feed back to you specific details about your cycle, about where you are, about sleep, and gives you information on training and nutrition to help support your body. Um, so it's a 3D approach to tracking in one space base instead of things like hello clue or flow or fitter woman it's 2d that's just giving general advice okay um so it is really interesting because it gives the woman information based on her own data her own body so that the information coming to her is directly beneficial instead of just generalized Mm, that's so good because even things like like something I learned recently is that like heart rate variability right which is another metric of recovery and readiness and things like that that is very um that varies widely between individuals but also women generally yeah right have some like trends that are different from like male HRV so like these are all things that we need to pay attention to but having something that can be like individualized for you 
is so important because that's another pitfall we fall into, which is comparing ourselves to other people, which right. is such a losing game because we will never be another person. Exactly. We will only be ourselves. Exactly. So we've got to figure out how to optimize and be our best self. I love that. Yeah. Um, okay. Wild AI, you said. Yes. Awesome. All right. Well, Dr. Sims, uh, I could go on. I so appreciate your time. I would love to have you back on to, to talk some other things, recovery being one of them. Yeah. Um, but thank you so much for the work that you're doing and for sharing with us today. I think uh, it's going to be really helpful to a lot of people. So I appreciate your time. Awesome. Thanks for having me. It's been fun. And uh, yeah, I'd love to be back on. Great. And where can folks um, learn more about the app, get your books? Like, Where's the best place to learn all about what you're doing? Uh, our website, drstacysims.com. It has okay. all of the things. Uh, yeah, it has the app. It has the books. has our little mini courses. has our big courses. It has lists of all the stuff that we're doing. And then you can also follow on social media, which is Dr. Stacy Sims on Insta and Facebook. Great. All right. Thank you so much for your time and uh, hope to have you back soon. Thanks. Appreciate it. <laughs>